0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... with your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, where we are not today reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. Uh, instead, we are interviewing the Tudor historian Susanna Lipscomb, who uh, you may have seen off telly. Plus, she's written uh, a couple of very interesting books about Henry VIII that have been very useful for me uh, with my research
1: now hmm. excuse me graham
0: yes how do i look S- slightly flustered slightly like you've been good All right okay. in your in your own head for a bit too
1: long in the last <laughs> half hour okay right okay this is going to be fine isn't it well yeah. the trouble is i i never know um when we're doing an interview that's a much rarer dynamic isn't it it for is not it us, yes um Especially as that you're talking to them peer to peer, and then <laughs> you've just brought your mate along, who you have to say sorry for. Um, that's not the dynamic. I or that's not the that's not the role I want Susanna to see mm. here. Yes, I've got to be the punchy, uh, go-getting historian. Think Indiana Jones. Yeah,
0: classic Tudor historian.
1: Yeah, that's this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, anything you can do to help that, that would be great um grateful.
0: Well, uh, let's find out how Ali gets on when we chat. This is Anna Lipscomb. So, we are very excited to be joined on the podcast today by author and historian, Professor Susanna Lipscomb. Susanna, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Delighted to be here.
0: Uh, first of all, uh, would you mind, for those who don't know, just introducing yourself in terms of uh, who you are and what you do?
2: So, I'm a historian chiefly of the 16th century. Um, I write books and I make television documentaries and I host a podcast called Not Just the Tudors. And that's about it, really.
1: (laughs) You're very often to be found on our screens here in the UK. Um, And actually, years ago, I once met you on Time Team.
2: Oh, yes. Uh, I had a lot of fun uh, on Time Castle.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, I think it was the last ever one, or the last series anyway.
2: The last before they went online. They're now doing them online. Are they? Yeah, Patreon is... Uh, people are paying for them to make them online. Oh, right. Oh, brilliant.
0: Same old team?
2: Largely, yes. Yeah. Oh, right.
0: They just haven't invited you to be back. <laughs> I know, why I wasn't Background invited alley. back. <laughs> yeah.
2: Cheeky beggars,
0: right. Okay. <laughs> I'm <laughs> really fact-
2: sorry I mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It does spoil my uh, routine to be able to say that Ali killed time team because he appeared in the background once and then they cancelled the whole show for...
2: Yeah. Well, it does Mm. actually sort of back you up, really, doesn't it? They're saying, OK, we've got to be careful not getting back (laughs) because I might lose the whole thing again.
0: Yeah. Um, But it's really great for us to have you on um, because I think your, your book, 1536 Year That Changed Henry VIII, was sort of the thing that inspired us to do our first ever episode where we didn't just review a monarch, but we did a little a sort of deep dive into Henry VIII and... Uh, what changed him so it's nice all these years later to then actually get to chat to you about Henry uh, about the six wives as we've just done in our current podcast on the consorts the six wives of Henry VIII so we've been in that world quite a lot of time but despite all the episodes that we've done I think we still have lots of questions about them about Henry and getting to the bottom of stuff and I think the overarching big question lots of people want to know and it's a bit of a technical question but essentially Henry VIII what on earth is going on there
1: <laughs> well i just find it always find that that specific year so when you when you introduce this to me graham that there might have been a specific event because he's so different from childhood to later life i still can't get my head around that i always think that he's just i think every the popular understanding of henry is that he's this he's always been that way but there was this renaissance prince when he was young it just still doesn't add up to me
2: We're really bad at thinking about people in history as experiencing change. We kind of fit them into one moment. And with Henry, of course, it's the picture by Holbein. And we think they were like that forever. And yet we know in our own lives that we are not the same people at 40 as we were at 20 or whatever. And we wouldn't perhaps want to be. I'm not sure that Henry's change is positive. Indeed, it isn't. But... (laughs) We hope that we mature and become kind of more sensible people. That is not what happens to Henry VIII, but he definitely changes. And I think part of the problem is that we've always thought about him in that last ten years of his life and everything that happened, and we really focus on the naturally the big event, which is the break with Rome and the consequences of that. And actually, if we look at those first twenty years of his reign, he's a, completely different sort of person. I mean, he's still egotistical and there are certain things that are latent in him that are catalyzed by what happens in 1536. But he's nothing like the kind of irascible, unpredictable, capricious monarch that he becomes, the tyrant really that he becomes in the last decade.
0: And what are some of the sort of the big events that happen in 1536 from where he is, I guess, at the start of the year to the end of the year? What happens to Henry in that 12 months?
2: So for a start, Catherine of Aragon dies. And this is something he's been waiting for in some ways, because it means that his marriage to Anne Boleyn is unopposed and any child, any son they might have is certainly going to be seen as legitimate, or that's how they see it. But Soon after that, he falls from his horse whilst jousting, probably actually training for a joust. It doesn't seem to have been a tournament. And we don't know exactly what happened. We don't know if the horse fell on him. Perhaps that would have killed him. I don't know. But he certainly was unconscious for two hours. And we know that the Imperial Ambassador Eustace Schapri says that everyone thought it a miracle that he wasn't killed. And the news of hearing this is what Anne Boleyn attributes to the miscarriage that he she has a few days later and they discover that she miscarries a son. She's probably about three and a half months pregnant and that's obviously devastating because he's put so much weight on that marriage producing the male heir that he's been waiting for that this miscarriage, which is possibly one after of a number of miscarriages that Anne has is deeply upsetting for them both and then if we skip forward a few months then accusations are made that Anne actually has been sleeping with a number of men at the court including her own brother which almost certainly 99.9% certainty isn't the case but in my opinion my reading of the evidence is that henry comes to believe that that is what's happened or he finds it convenient to believe that in some way because it suggests He's not inadequate, right? Mm. She she has wanted this great um, number of lovers. In fact, he says at one point she slept with upwards of 100 men, which of course is not true. But he can consider himself the wronged party and he has her beheaded. And at the trial of jo- Anne and her brother, George Boleyn, George Boleyn reads out a piece of paper which says that he and Anne had laughed at the king's manner of dressing, they'd laughed at his dreadful poetry, and Anne had told her brother that Henry is not good in bed, like he, he's just not potent. And this is said in front of a crowd of 2,000 people in the Great Hall at the Tower of London. So it's totally humiliating to him. This is the year he turns 45, which in the 16th century is thought to mark the onset of old age, and then to hammer everything home at the end of the year which is a year in which they've started to dissolve the monasteries there's a massive rebellion against him somewhere between 30 and 50,000 men take up arms against him and he perceives this as their betrayal and he blames particularly monks and he he kind of has this very extreme reaction to how he should deal with those he thinks have been traitors to him so it's a year I mean with full of terrible blows emotional and physical and psychological, and I'm sure it changes him.
1: God, blimey. Any one of those things would uh, would have been a Christmas letter, wouldn't it? Oh, and I've actually
2: forgotten one crucial thing that happens in the middle of the year, of course, and his son, who's 17 years old, his illegitimate son, who he is at this time, it seems, thinking about making legitimate, his son dies.
1: So like, what about the suggestion that that there was some sort of medical event, brain event, that was ca- caused by his fall? Or do you think it was just in the light of in the light of what he saw as the betrayal from Anne, he just... I don't know. It was a massive personality change, or do you think it was enough to... that it should, there is a plausibility that it was a brain event?
2: It's certainly possible that something happened... I've spoken to a pathologist about it, for example, who suggested that maybe he's bruised his cerebral cortex. And if you do that, it kind of throws you back into adolescence that time ah. a lack of reason or where yeah. one pings between different emotions and can't quite control oneself. You ah. haven't got that kind of sense of ability to hold oneself back in the same way as you develop later in life. Mm. So that's certainly a possibility. The problem is that we just don't have enough evidence to conclude either way. So we can theorize, yeah. but we don't have the evidence, the medical evidence from the early 16th century isn't good enough. So we can say with certainty that he's got a number of emotional blows that year. <laughs> and that probably enough is enough to explain his change of character. But maybe there's something going on, like the sort of thing that happens to athletes who are playing American football. There's been notable changes of, in personality of people um, who've had brain injuries, yeah. playing American football, so it could be could be like that.
1: Yeah,
0: and even if it's not a brain injury, the um, issue he has with like his legs and his ulcers and stuff, and he's not able to joust it again, isn't he? So even if he doesn't have a specific brain injury, it will have affected him a great deal. The fact of having that accident.
2: Yes, and he's in constant pain for the mm. next decade or so because of that ulcer and his, and I'm sure we can just look at that as a good reason for him being Mm. far more irritable than he was before, but he's irritable with all the power of the crown behind Mm. him. And we're irritable, no one's going to die. But if (laughs) Henry VIII is irritable, it has much more serious consequences. So absolutely. And as you say, he can't jast again. He never jasts again after that year. He puts on enormous amounts of weight, as we all know. I mean, he has a waist measurement of 37 inches in 1536 it's um, 54 inches in 1540, I and mean, that's a God. huge weight gain over a really short number of years. His diet is pretty terrible. I mean, he basically lives on bread and meat, um, and he doesn't exercise after that point. He'd been very athletic in his youth, and he'd been e- used to eating the diet that compensated him mm. activity. Yeah. He's not doing that, so he puts on huge amounts of weight, which is also obviously very bad for his own self-image, I think.
1: Yeah, I'm sure so much of it seems to be linked to vanity. Like it, it feels like he's, uh, he's just angry at the loss of his youth, and he's always been told yes, and he this is the one thing he can't say n- uh, no to.
2: Yes, I think he was very beautiful when he was a young man, by all accounts. And there's a reckoning, isn't there, when people who've been beautiful age? They've got to learn how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And he'd been the centre of everyone's attention and i think that it was hard not to be the person who was you know the centre of emulation adulation at that Mm. point in time
0: so one thing with henry and i guess this debate about him changing is there would be some historians will say that sort of some of these elements of him are kind of always there So do you think it's like an absolute, like he changes from one person to another, or is it almost like there are sort of dormant traits that perhaps just really get heightened and crystallised by what happens in this year? How do you see the change happening?
2: It makes sense that it's the latter, doesn't it? You know, Mm. that these things are latent in him, uh, that they're differently deployed in a different set of circumstances. I don't think he wakes up with a completely different personality, but I think that he... Digs deep into certain areas of his personality, which are much more damaging.
0: Because I was thinking about this um, this morning, and without wanting to sympathise with Henry and his subsequent actions too much, but it's interesting, particularly when we did the Catherine of Aragon episodes and that young uh, Henry, how he sort of seems to have this sort of slightly—I don't know—he's almost a bit naive for a while. Like he has seems to have this very like view of chivalry, and he wants to go out and be the glorious prince and conquer France and. All this other stuff, but it feels like along the way he keeps getting all of these disappointments that isn't meant to happen because, like, he's the rich kid that everyone's you know, he's got the fastest car, he's got the best phone, and all this stuff, but things keep breaking and he can't quite deal with it.
2: I think that he wasn't prepared for failure. I think that he was so mollycoddled after the death of Prince Arthur in 1501 in 1502, that there's a sense that he he just doesn't have the opportunity to risk failure. And so when he runs into it, it hits him hard. And I also don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with sympath- with sympathising with him, actually. Obviously, I do think he becomes a tyrant, but I think that part of our responsibility as historians is to try and understand why people do what they do. And that means thinking about things from their perspective and how it would have felt. And I think that gives us a different understanding. I mean, I was very interested when I suddenly realised, having read lots of books about Henry VIII all the years ago when I wrote the book 1536, that these things happened in this one chronological year. Mm. And it suddenly made such a difference to think about what that might have been like to live through Whereas, you know, it's so easy to talk about these things thematically and not really consider them in linear time. But we have to live in linear time and we have to experience it. And Mm. so we need to consider that from the point of view of our historical subjects, I think.
0: And do you think they would have seen that change or been aware of that at the time, like that there was a change in Henry? Or do you think it's only kind of with the perspective looking back that it's possible to see that kind of shift?
2: I can't think of any particular source that uses the words change that talks about the King changing, Mm. but I can think of lots of sources that describe him in very pleasant, positive ways early in his reign and Mm. that describe him in very different ways later in his reign. (laughs) And in part, that's about who's writing the sources. So we have some ambassadors who visit in the 15 teens, and never come back and we have those who were there in the 1540s who didn't see him when he was in his twenties. Mm. So if we're looking for records of change we need to find people who are there all the time but they're likely to be his courtiers and the people who are most likely not to be writing that down because of course in 1534 words had become treason so it became treason to call the king a heretic or a tyrant or an infidel or a schismatic or to maliciously de- deny his supremacy. So you had to be fairly reckless and have something of a death wish to put <laughs> any of this stuff in writing, if you were one of his subjects. Hmm. So what was that in fifteen
1: thirty four? That was like a that was uh, what act was passed that made him sort of that was a, was that that must have been a threshold moment. If you couldn't then complain to the same degree.
2: Yes, it's it's called the Treasons Act, and it accompanies the Act of Supremacy and the Act of Succession. Ah. And in the Act of Succession, there's an oath to be sworn by all men in the kingdom saying they'll be true to Queen Anne and consider Princess Mary but as a bastard and to do so without any scrupulosity of conscience. The idea is they're not (laughs) even allowed to think something different. Uh. But the Act of Treason spells out that it is high treason and you will suffer the, the traitor's death of hanging, drawing, and quartering if... You call the king a tyrant? I mean what a tyrannical thing to do. <laughs> to make it yeah. Im- impossible yeah. to, to be called a tyrant.
1: But was and so at the time was that um was there uproar about that? Because obviously now that we'd sort of say, oh, it's like some sort of Putin-esque move. But uh or was that just seen as the king grabbing his absolute power that he was he was due?
2: How would we measure uproar yeah. when uproar itself
1: would Is be that... treason. Oh, I suppose, yeah. So then it's after that you get the um rebellion. What was it called? The, the pilgrimage of grace. Pil- yes. Uh, okay. It's adding up, Graham <laughs> t- takes some tips from the story in here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Something you said um earlier which I thought was quite interesting. you we were talking about um Henry and Anne and that how you thought that he did sort of genuinely believe or sort of find a way to believe that she was guilty and I was rereading the fifteen thirty-six book again. I was this sense it's almost like a kind of career politician not career politician, conviction politician. Sort of almost sort of Tony Blair mode where it sort of almost didn't matter if he was right or wrong, he believed he was right and that once he believed he was right in something, he sort of couldn't be moved from it. So I guess when we're sort of thinking about how he how to view him Like, it would be easy to see him as this kind of Machiavellian figure that's bringing people down and destroying them. But do you think he ever really is that, or does he always think he's on the side of the angels and it's just everybody else that keeps failing?
2: I think you're on the money. I think he absolutely comes to believe that everything he's doing is right. He convinces himself. I mean, he's a master of (laughs) self-delusion and... He is convinced at all times that what he's doing is right, uh, that it is God's will. He has these huge tapestries commissioned telling the story of Abraham. You know, they're at Hampton Court now, vast. They cost £2,000, that's the cost of a warship, and they're commissioned in 1543. They tell the story of Abraham having a son late in life and having this direct commission by God. And it's clear that Henry sees this as a a parallel to himself. He has a psalter in which he's depicted as King David taking on Goliath, who practically has a papal tiara on. I mean, (laughs) he sees himself as one of these kind of Old Testament kings or prophets. What he is doing is utterly for the good of the country and just happens to be good for him as well.
0: (laughs) because that's one of the inter- interesting things with the reformation and religion and I think that's another question which I think Ali was always sort of trying to ask me and I was trying to answer but never quite getting to the bottom of where Henry VIII is on the religious spectrum and what exactly his settlement is and it seemed like the thing that made the most sense to him was the supremacy and the idea that he is answerable only to God Um but where like where does the rest of it fit in though? We've got he and um. he's we've got God, we've got Henry VIII, but what did he think of everything else?
2: Yes, the supremacy is the heart of it. That's the key to understanding it. He sees himself as a Catholic, just not a Roman Catholic. And um. he thinks of himself as a reformer, but certainly not a Protestant. He absolutely hates Luther. And he thinks that Luther's ideas about justification by grace through faith alone is going to lead to anarchy. So he thinks that works of charity or good works are are crucial. He denies people the opportunity to Mm -hmm. have their souls prayed for them, which is Mm -hmm. vital if you believe in a theology that incorporates purgatory. And yet he leaves 1,300 pounds or thereabouts for masses to be said for his soul while the world <laughs> shall endure. And he maintains the Latin mass in all its splendor until his death. He's got this beautiful rosary beads. But he seems sees himself as a reforming king along the lines of someone like um, Josiah or David. And there's that famous copy of the Whitehall mural. The picture we all know of Henry is part of a bigger picture. It was originally a mural at Whitehall Palace that burnt down. It was nine foot by 12 foot and it has Henry the Seventh, Elizabeth of York and Jane Seymour on it as well. But in the middle is a stone plinth where he compares his achievements to those of his father and he says that his own achievements are putting down the presumption of popes and restoring true religion. So that's the heart of it really.
1: I'd, n- I'd never thought of it like that. A Catholic, just not a Roman Catholic. I'd just seen Catholic and Protestant. Like there were two camps, but uh, that's that's fascinating. I just can't understand uh, how that whole period, how anyone would ever venture any opinion on religion at any point. <laughs> it's just it's too scary when the, the he revels in these grey areas, legally and with religion and everything. It's just so terrifying and murky I think that's that's what I got out of Henry the most at the end that he was just a tyrant and terrifying along the line that all tyrants are and not this uh... well I I said to Gran the other day I just find it odd that he's been reduced to a cuddly bear status that you can get in the gift shop when he's this brutal monster it's very odd that we've been able to do that
2: it's the passage of time you can get Che Guevara on t-shirts it's the same (laughs) yeah yeah
1: yeah, that's
0: true. It's an interesting yeah. question, though, like the popular perception of Henry, maybe not just as the uh, the cuddly <laughs> Teddy in the gift shop, but there's a kind of a, an awe and power about him, like you're saying with the, uh, the Whitehall mural and Holbein. And that was one of the in- really interesting things, I think, actually, about the 1536 book was almost what happens afterwards and actually putting into context Holbein's image of him and how much that, defines Henry so do you think there is now like a disconnect between the real Henry and the uh, perceived Henry?
2: Yes I think so in at least two ways I mean one is that Holbein's image which almost certainly is what the king looked like but it's been used as a symbol of who he was so what's so fascinating about that picture is it's a picture of a king but he's not any of the accoutrements of So he's not wearing a crown, mm. he's not holding an auburn scepter. We see him primarily as a man. It's powerful testimony to him being this most potent man in every sense of the word. And that's one of the pictures that we have of him, this man of great appetites who marries six times mm. and probably has lots of although he doesn't have it. Henry's problem is that he just marries the people he wants to sleep with as opposed to today Mm. when people just don't do that. Um, But that's not who Henry is at all. It's how he wants to be seen. And then I think the other crucial thing is that he's become a symbol of Britishness or Englishness. So when the Channel Tunnel was opened um, in 1989, they put on either side of the entrance at saint uh, a massive cardboard figure of Henry VIII and a massive cardboard figure of Francois well, I, his <laughs> rival, and the sense that he kind of stands for something. I think people have referred to the break with Rome as the first Brexit. There's a sense that his formation of the Navy and the break with Rome Entrenched ideas about Englishness that was so important to the Victorians. I think he becomes a symbol of Englishness defying the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, that is that's an incredible um, uh, parallel that Brexit to, that we can sort of play with now. To uh, such a um, such a, a schism like that to separate us off, it must have had an influence on the next few hundred years that we. Think of ourselves as different, and like culturally, uh, maybe there is a case for that. That after th- best part of five hundred years, we develop at a different pace or in a different way. It just—it just is such an important time that you can see those sort of things today.
2: It's certainly true that it has a significance psychologically. In practice, there's no sort of great separation. There are lots of Europeans in mm. the English Navy. In the what constitutes the English army, there are yeah. lots of foreign artisans working in England. The, there's, the channel is, as one great maritime historian has put it, it you know, is a bridge. It connects mm. England with the rest of the continent rather than separating it. So, in terms of actually how things carried on, there isn't a great separation in cultural terms in this period of time at all. But I think it does kind of set up a sense of being different
1: hmm.
2: from the rest of Europe that catches on by a, at least the sort of the end of the 16th century, which is a, partly a reaction to Mary Tudor's marriage to Philip II. Uh, yeah. And it's partly um, a reaction to Charles I being married to Henrietta Maria. You know, so there's.
0: Hmm. And there's something with Henry which. One of the weird ways, despite everything we said, that he sort of in some ways seems more relatable is, like you're saying, the fact that he marries the people that he wants to sleep with, rather than simply, you know, who's a useful dynastic match or a foreign alliance, that he's actually four times out of six marrying English consorts, which, um, as saying in the podcast, doesn't happen again until the 20th century. So, I don't know, do you, do you, do you find, is that an appeal, do you think, of Henry, the fact that, in some ways, he is a bit, seems a bit more human somehow, like he's making decisions based on his needs rather than simply this cold, rational mm. politician
2: that's a really interesting point i've never really thought about that uh, that he chooses English spouses. perhaps that's part of it i don't know. I think there's a strange sense of kind of pride in henry. <laughs> which is a bit bizarre if we think about it. But I feel like that sense that Henry kind of represents us hmm. still remains the case quite a bit.
1: I just find it so odd that he's also such a romantic, like that he's uh, uh, clearly seems to have these psychopathic tendencies. I mean, he chops ahead of his wife, so that's a bit odd. But then gets all hurt by someone not quite getting into the idea of these plays that he does and um but just as the as a toddler will just massively overacts and as you say with the power of a king to snicks their heads clean off it just it's, it seems like such a um juxtaposition with this this romantic on one hand and then uh, a murderer on the other
2: well but he's not really romantic is he he's somebody who is objectifying, in other words. He has an idea about women. He sees them as a certain thing. Nearly every one of those women was in service to a previous wife. Anne Boleyn is uh, in the court of Catherine of Aragon. Jane Seymour is at the court of both Catherine and Anne. Catherine Howard is a servant of Anne of Cleves. Catherine Parr is working at the court. So Mm. he spots these people around fancies them and projects a whole bunch of stuff onto them. And then when they turn out to disappoint that massively idolised picture he has of them, when they Mm. turn out to be human, he dispenses with them. Mm. So I don't think these things are that different. I think that he has a very limited psychological understanding, really. Mm.
0: Yeah, I guess it's maybe it's not that it's not him as a great romantic, but that maybe in his head he has an idea of of that as as mattering. Like, it feels really weird, and doing Anne of Cleves' episode and getting a little bit more of the European context helped to make a bit more sense that there was more going on than simply Henry didn't like Anne of Cleves. But even so, the idea that the fact that the king wasn't taken with her really mattered. Seems yes, I
2: mean, my take on that is that actually what's going on is that henry sees himself honestly reflected in her eyes mm-hmm. because he surprises her and she doesn't know the game she doesn't know that when these six men come in in identical clothing she's be able supposed to be able to tell which one is the king and actually he's going to be the big fat one who's pouring her inappropriately and <laughs> pressing his lips against hers in this totally rude way And she only realises her mistake when he comes back in dressed in purple velvet, which only a king can wear, and everyone bows to him. But Mm. he's grabbed hold of her and tried to snog her. In his point of view, he thinks that he's going to nourish love. That's a sort of courtly love idea. And I think that she's been disappointed in him, and he's seen that. Because we always talk about the portrait that Holbein painted of her, but she would have been sent a portrait of him as well. And that also wouldn't have looked Mm. anything like he did.
1: (laughs) So was this after the Holbein one?
2: Possibly before. I mean, at some point in those negotiations, because it takes quite a while to get a portrait from the Cleves court. Um, One is sent over and they're not happy with it because they don't think it's an independent portrait. And so then Holbein is sent over to paint her. So possibly at some point in 1539. And I think that... He's obviously very disappointing. And, you know, I <laughs> I always think that when we get into that bedchamber and he says, you know, her breasts are too hanging and her stomach is too big and she smells, you know, there's someone in that room who's fat, smelly and not a virgin, and it's not. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's just projection.
1: Yeah. That's true, isn't it? I wonder, Yeah. Oh, I'd love to know what portrait she saw of him. It's so Ricky Gervais, isn't it? It's a sort of old David Brent rather to put the, a sort of 10-year-old portrait in the post to her.
2: <laughs> I reckon it might be something like the Jules van Cleve one um, of 1535, which is perhaps his most beautiful painting. Let's look. <laughs> which is not the one. Cleve never saw him, so it's a kind of slightly idealised picture. So, Oh, yeah, this guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know him. Oh, that doesn't, yeah, it doesn't look anything like the Holbein one. His face, at least. <laughs> He's got the right gear on.
0: Yeah, there we go. I'm loving also that this is the point, 45 minutes in, that this is the point at which Ali decides to Google Henry. Who's <laughs> <laughs> this guy we're talking about? <laughs> He's on everything. You can't miss him. That's the point. <laughs> like,
1: is, who is this guy? Who's the real Henry?
2: Some images you might not be familiar with are the Horenboot miniatures from the 1520s. Those are probably painted from the life. I so, if we want a it. snapshot of him earlier, that's the, those are the ones to look at as well. How there's spell ones that? with him. H O R E N B O U T. Although there is actually some dispute about whether it's Horenboot, which is probably the sort of Flemish way of spelling it, and, or Hornbolt, as the English <laughs> scramble it. But, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, the
1: funny little circle round face. Yes, so there are a couple
2: of those: one with a beard and one without.
1: The one without is is absolutely brilliant. He, so you, do we think that one's more more true to life? Or well, is from wasn't...
2: him in fifteen twenty seven when it's painted. Oh right,
1: blimey, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> he's not. He's, I mean, I can see I can see how he would grow into the Holbein face there, but he's.
2: I mean, he benefits from a beard, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey, welcome to IKEA, where even this desk is circular.
2: Huh. Ability to receive a quote depends on membership eligibility. Membership eligibility and product restrictions apply and are subject to change. USAA means United Services Automobile Association and its affiliates, San Antonio, Texas.
0: Slightly putting Henry uh, to one side. I said, uh, we've just finished our uh, mini-series on The Six Wives of Henry VIII. I believe you've got a book coming out later this year on The Six Wives.
2: Yes, it's not going to be coming out later this year. It'll be coming out in 2025.
0: Um... Ah, amazon are giving a uh, uh, yes uh, giving false...
2: <laughs> i know i need to get my publisher to speak to amazon about it because you're not the first people to contact me and say so later this year <laughs>
0: um
2: and it's partly my fault because at some point in the distant past we did think it would be coming out this year but i've done a lot of archival research i'm in the midst of archival research as well and discovered loads and loads of new stuff and i'm not going to be able to tell you most of that but i would be able to say that it just became a much bigger project, you know, mm. because oh, cool. I wanted to kind of really dig into that and not just synthesise everything that had been done before, but find as much new stuff as I could. So that takes time.
1: And <laughs> what, what's the subject of that?
2: Oh, it's funny enough, the six women we're talking about. Now. Oh, right. <laughs> it's
1: not sp- just Henry.
2: In fact, Henry is uh, in the wings as much as possible. Uh, he's <laughs> such a black hole, he kind of sucks you in and you just end up talking <laughs> about him. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just trying to like... Wherever possible, just go, get out of the way. I'm trying to get their <laughs> perspective.
1: Yeah, that, well, that's what's been the great thing about this series, just looking at it from the consort's point of view. Um, but, yeah, you do inevitably swing back to, to making to him the subject.
0: But, yeah, I was interested in what your sort of approach to it was going to be because um, I think one of the things I really enjoy about the two previous books you've done on Henry is that, obviously, there are lots and lots of books about Henry VIII, but you sort of always find a slightly different... Angle said the one we were talking about 1536 is one year that changed him and then also the um, King is Dead so about the, well about I guess Henry dying but particularly on his will and the battle for the succession which again neither of those are things that I'd really read before so I was wondering with the Six Wives is it going to be like a, a bit of sort of a big attack book on them or are you sort of looking at it from a different perspective
2: Yeah I mean I think you're going to be able to hold doors open with it um, <laughs> it's not just when they are queens. So I'm looking at their lives in as m- for as much time as we know about them. So for Catherine uh, of Aragon, as we know her, we, we have detailed information from the moment she's born to the moment she dies. Mm-hmm. For Jane Seymour, we don't really have much before 1535 because she doesn't seem to do anything particularly interesting before that point. So we've got a varied amount of information. So it's... In each case, from birth to death, and that means that the events of 1527 for example, which concern both Catherine and Anne, we will see from Catherine's perspective and then from Anne's perspective. So each one of them is my protagonist for the p- mm-hmm. for the period of time when I'm writing about them. And I think that really opens up our eyes to various things. and. I also rely a lot on non-Anglophone sources because Mm. historians tend to use that which is readily available in printed form in English. And it turns out if you go into manuscripts and you look in languages other than English, then you find a whole lot of information that isn't easily uh, available to us and lots of new stuff. So... I'm trying to shed a lot of light where possible on their early lives because I think it's full formative. For Anne Boleyn in France, for example, um, mm. for Catherine in Spain. And that that has brought up lots of new information.
0: How do you go like when you're doing all six of them? Do you have like a, I don't know, like a project plan or something of how you do it? Like Do you do each one or are you sort of always on the go with all six of them?
2: I'm doing them... I suppose in overlapping ways. So Catherine and Anne have overlapped, and Anne and Jane overlap. We've got a little break. <laughs> <laughs> Anne and Catherine overlap, mm. and then we've got Catherine at the end. Um, so, I, whilst I do write about them individually, some of the research overlaps a bit.
1: Mm. Who's come out on top then for you? Because <laughs> well, we go, th- you know, we go through all the art that we give them the Rex factor whether they have it or not. And,
0: say, so if you don't say. <laughs> I say oh, well, you well we don't know which, which one. Ones? Yeah.
2: So, I think Catherine of Aragon is utterly formidable and amazingly cultured and learned and brilliant, and we don't really give her the time of day hardly as much as we should. And I think she's far more interesting than we think. Anne Boleyn, obviously, is fascinating for everybody in many ways. And she's almost as learned as Catherine, though I don't think she necessarily has Latin and certainly not to the extent that Catherine does. Uh, But she's interesting in terms of thinking about her motivations and what's driving her. Jane Seymour is a bit of a struggle, Mm -hmm. I think, because we have so little information about her use of Chapuis, who writes about so many of the others in such tantalising detail, does not write about her, or at least we could say that his letters about her do not survive apart from one early one in early 1536. And so we are missing quite a lot of the information that we'd need to get a full picture of her. Anne of Cleves I think is kind and lovely um, and just sort of treated badly. Catherine Howard is very, very young and makes the sort of mistakes you might imagine from a very young person. And Catherine Parr is a force to be reckoned with. So yeah. we have we have some <laughs> amazing women amongst them.
1: Yeah, I thought uh, from not knowing very much beyond what you'd expect someone with GCSE history to know of the Six Wives. I thought I was going to think Anne of Cleves was the best. Because or like the most I, relatable, the one I could relate to most, that she actually managed to get out of this horrible trap. Um, but it was all about Catherine Parr for me at the end. She's awesome.
2: Yes, this she is f- awesome.
1: If only she didn't have such rubbish-tasted men.
2: <laughs> She's been from the downfall of many a good woman.
1: <laughs> or rather, I wish I, I wished the men were not so awful to her. But it, it, it it's just... I wish, or she had longer, because she seems like she could have been a formidable. Uh, what, what are they called when take over for the king whilst too young? A regent. Uh, regent, yeah, it would have been absolutely great, some sort of uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine style person.
2: Yes, I mean, and that possibility was certainly there, and Henry had made her, as you know, regent when he was abroad in France, but he doesn't name her, as you all know, also mm. in mm. the will as having that role. Which is a shame. But what ha- might have happened informally if she hadn't married Thomas Seymour?
0: She had mm. such a
2: great influence on Elizabeth. She really helped make Elizabeth into the queen that she would become. And if she had been around for longer and not yeah. died as a result of childbirth, as so many mm. women did, yes, I agree. Her, she was, She was amazing. That
0: what sort if, of goes back actually to your... Your book on the will. In fact, it seemed like Catherine Parr expected that she would be regent. So, was she ever, like, like in Henry's view, and or legally, was she ever in a position where if Henry had died, she would have been regent? Because he changes his will, obviously, in 15... Well, it's only a month before he dies, isn't it, that he changes it. So, was she there before, or was she never actually in the frame?
2: It's impossible to say because we don't have any of his earlier wills. Mm. We've only got that one of the 30th of December, 1546. And we know he'd made an earlier will when he went to France, for example. Perhaps he named her as regent then, but we don't know. We Mm. can't possibly say. There was a while back that Dale Hoke thought he had found an earlier will, but it turns out actually it's just a copy of that one um, from the 30th of December with the the date incorrectly put by the (laughs) scribe as the 13th of December, but it's the 30th.
1: It's tempting to assume that it—it's it, because she's just too capable. She had, you know, she had, and it just didn't fit with Henry's view of the world that he, that she might have taken a, taken done a really good job of it, or and and changed his religious reforms too far one way or. I don't know. I just feel like he was intimidated by her by the end.
2: I wonder if it relates to that brush with death that she had in the summer of 1546 when it seems that she was investigated for heresy but managed Uh to persuade Henry by meeting with him that she had just been asking his opinion about religious matters and trying to divert his mind from his pain and of course he was her lord and master and he decided everything. And we're told, according to Fox anyway, John Fox, the great martyrologist, that Henry took her in his arms and called her his sweetheart and they were perfect friends again. But there's certainly a moment when a day after that reunion, Thomas Risley turns up to arrest her with 40 guards. I mean, it's a very close run thing. And I wonder if, although Henry does seem to have rehabilitated her then and given her lots of gifts and been sort of desperately pleased that not yet an- another person had let him down, I wonder if at some level he had lingering suspicions. Who knows? Mm. I mean, that's that's
1: so, that was so crucial, wasn't it? That meeting. Because that, it seemed like... Uh, because he shuts... He just turns off a switch in his head uh, to these people, uh, and but but Catherine had that moment to plead her case. I th- I wonder how different it would have been if if Anne had that moment or the other Catherine, because it I yeah it feels like that was crucial and that might have saved her.
2: Absolutely, and I think mm. she had some sort of tip off. There's a couple of different stories about how she was tipped off. But you're absolutely mm. right. If either Anne or Catherine Howard had had that moment to speak to yeah. Henry, everything could have been very different.
1: That's that's the weird bit of his character that he does have uh, a, a, a an aside that you can appeal to when he's also prepared to be so cruel and <laughs> I know, it's, it's just so extreme.
2: He just thinks it's he's always right. Himself. He just thinks yeah. he's always right.
1: Yeah, it's not a good trait, is it? Generally. <laughs> it turns out.
2: <laughs> no, it's really important to be able to admit our mistakes. There's a wonderful book that helped me when I was writing 1536 called "Mistakes Were Made, but Not by Me," <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's about the sort of cognitive dissonance and how we deal yeah. with that. And it's crucial to understanding Henry. You know, yeah. he he believes that mistakes are made in the passive tense or by other people, and that he is never personally responsible for them
1: it's just so trumpian the way he wriggles out of arguments and uses this gray area that he later uses to his advantage and just he has an idea of truth that he puts out and then just gets behind it and that's it It, oh just makes my skin crawl yeah i
2: mean like thomas more and john fisher died because of an act that was passed after they had apparently committed this crime you Mm. know or Catherine howard as you know the charges against her or the indictment of her is in the same act that creates the crime that for which she is convicted i mean the whole thing is just ludicrous it's legal but only just
1: oh yeah i mm, don't stand a chance
0: and also going back to the religious question it's it seems odd that you have this scenario that like Catherine parr almost falls due to heresy but that you can have like Gardner on the one hand and Catherine Parr on the other at the same court, both very close to Henry and both sort of low level fighting it out for the religious soul of the country. It seems weird that Henry hasn't just been like, these are the rules, there can be no question, there's no grey area, it's obviously this and anyone on the other side is wrong. It's weird that you can have these mm. different sides operating.
2: I think actually he is sort of saying that this is how it is and anything else is wrong. And he just doesn't assume that anyone else will attempt to make up what salvation or theology could be. Of course, they're going to go along with his way of seeing it. <laughs>
0: yeah. So actually, he thinks it's very, very clear. And it's just everybody else that doesn't.
2: <laughs> yes, <it's laughs> doesn't everyone else it. is having tr- trouble following him. But he thinks it's very clear. And I think also we have to be really clear in our heads that most of Henry's reign is happening before the great schism between uh, Protestants and Catholics has really become entrenched. Of course, Luther predates Henry in Henry's break with Rome. And of course, there is that sense of his followers becoming known as Protestants from 1530. But even people we think of as Protestants, like Thomas Cranmer, don't in Henry's reign reign believe that the mass is anything other than transubstantiation, for example. And so some of the sort of default lines between Protestants and Catholics that emerged later in the 16th century have not yet been entrenched. We haven't yet had the Council of Trent, which redefines Roman Catholicism. There hasn't been yet this sense that Luther's not a blip and it's all Mm. going to go back to being Mm. one single church. And we know that it becomes two different denominations Mm. but that's not clear in the 1530s
0: Mm. I've got a uh, listener question for you from uh, this is from Tricia from uh, Oregon who's asked um, that each wife has a motto most associated with their reign Uh, which would you be most likely uh, to adopt so uh, for benefit all of this the mottos we got Catherine of Aragon humble and loyal Anne Boleyn the most happy Jane Seymour, I've written that one twice, Jane Seymour was the bound, was that was it bound to obey? Bound to serve and obey. Bound to serve and obey. Anne of Cleves, God send me well to keep. Catherine Howard, no other will than his. And Catherine Parr, to be useful in all I do.
2: Well, Catherine Parr is quite nice. It's a little bit like Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Anne Boleyn's is actually nicer than we think, because Happy, and I get this from Natalie Gruniger, uh means lucky so she's not saying Mm. she's the most happy she's saying she's the luckiest person to be in that position which of course she's not even that (laughs) Mm. but it might be nice to celebrate one's luck and fortune um and be grateful for it i suppose (laughs) i go somewhere between amberlyn and catherine Parr. i think yeah
1: the other three are pretty terrifying aren't they a bit bit another will be his
2: Mm. is is my least favorite yeah (laughs) yeah
0: I, I remember that like, Anne Boleyn briefly like adopt something like let them grumble or something. When
2: Yes, she has lots of mottos. The, so the most happy <laughs> is the one she adopts on marriage. But yes, she has one, chronic um, chronique, which is, um, you know, yes, let those who want to grumble about it grumble. <laughs> you know, haters, haters are going to hate. hate. Yes. yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Oh, brilliant. A uh, final question on Henry. How do you think he would have judged... His own reign
2: as an out and out success.
0: <laughs> yeah, I the I most <laughs>
2: important in English history, the defining moment of our kingdom's story. You know, the person who built up the navy, who had those magnificent triumphs in France, who established the Church of England. I mean, in every way, he would have seen himself as successful.
1: Even in, uh, he would have counted the French battle uh, that he just what was it that he did over there? He had a little
0: scuffle and went back. He would look at Spurs, yeah, (laughs) the battle when he wasn't really looking, but
2: (laughs) the battle where he wasn't really looking exactly. We've got this amazing painting of the Battle of Spurs with Henry at the centre of the action, and he's not fighting in it. So how does he think about it as the painting?
0: (laughs) (laughs) He thinks about the Siege (laughs) of
2: Boulogne as being this great achievement. He's Capable, I tell you, of convincing himself of anything.
0: It's <laughs> a <laughs> so useful, if not a very uh, helpful, trait.
2: I mean, it's You're a way of organising that cognitive dissonance. You know, it's a way of yeah. saying, "Yeah, I was brilliant. Yes, I you know. I, I do not feel shame. I do not feel failure because everything I do is touched with gold."
1: Mm. It's a useful filter to look at his life, though. That with not never being told no, and uh, yeah, just assuming he's. Like, the, the arrogance. Just, just assume everyone would know what he's thinking, for example, because it's in my head.
0: <laughs> and I guess that's another thing with 1536. It's almost like all of the people that were, if not authority figures, but perhaps people that he had respect for or he'd craved their uh, respect in some way, like, they're all gone after that, isn't it? So, like, everyone that's left is really his lackeys to a certain extent. Well, not lackeys, but you know, but they're people who have to look to him. for.
2: And certainly that's the case after 1540 with the death of Cromwell. Mm. There is a sense in which people he's looked up to, though, like Wolsey and Catherine of Aragon, are no longer there. And now, as you say, they're people he has made, he has raised. Mm. And he makes it very clear to them that he can put them down just as much mm. as raise them up. And I think that is crucial. But, you know, we see some of his closest friends suffer in the 1530s as well. I mean, basically, you have to be able to bend like a reed in the wind to survive in the Tudor period. You have Mm. to be able to frame your truth to feign, as Thomas Wyatt, the poet, puts it. You you can't be telling the truth and standing on your conscience like more Mm. because otherwise you end up dead not cheerful me. cheerful isn't it
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh, i say it on that happy note yeah well, ali do you have any other burning henry VIII or six wives questions that you want to get off your chest
1: um well there's been many times recently that i've said asked you a question you said we're, we'll save it ask <laughs> when well, we're talking to dr son lipscomb um uh are you going to do a book on cromwell because everyone knows he's he's the best Tudor.
2: <laughs> I don't think so, because I really like Derwin McCulloch's book on Thomas Cromwell, and it's pretty hard to beat Derwin McCulloch on anything when he's put his full force of attention into a subject. So I don't think I'll try.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> That's a Rex Factor scoop, then, of sorts.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no <Snowed> Cromwell book. <laughs> I think Ali's basically just looking for someone to tell him all about Thomas Cromwell.
1: Yeah, that that well or or that new BBC adaptation of Bring Up the Bodies. Just something needs to happen to say that. Um
2: can't first. wait to see that. I can't yeah. wait. It's I'm so looking forward to it. I thought that was a wonderful show. Wolfram. Yeah. I thought it was really evoked the period so well. Yeah. And it would be interesting to see what they do. I wonder given that they've had to make some of it, presumably without Hillary there to advise, whether they've kept all of that wonderful authenticity of detail I hope so mm. I do. yeah
1: later. well thank you so much for um for joining us on Rex Factor and sparing the time to talk
2: you're most welcome it's lovely to talk with you both and I'm always happy to talk about Henry and his <laughs> six queens
0: if people would like to hear more from you uh where where should they go where can they hear more from you
2: so I've already plugged my podcast mm-hmm. which is called Not Just the Tudors. It's from History Hit that comes out twice a week. And you can find it on podfollow.com, not just the Tudors, but just Google it and you'll find it, I think. Um, and on social media I'm at Sixteenth C Girl, sixteenth written out, sixteenth century girl. Um, and there I generally opine about things historic. <laughs> <laughs> um And otherwise, I don't know, hopefully coming to a television near you before too long.
0: (laughs) And what is the podcast on? Not just the Tudors, what do you...
2: So it's the 16th and 17th centuries. I kind of think of it as between 1492 and 1692, but it's around the world. So it's the Tudors, but not just the Tudors. So we have episodes on Anne Boleyn, but we also have episodes on the Maya or the Ming Dynasty. And it allows us to do all manner of niche things. So let me give you an idea. So the ones we've recently recorded have been on John Donne, on Morisco's in 16th century Spain, on obscene jokes in 16th century (laughs) Switzerland, um, and on an Elizabethan sailor who travelled across North America in the late 16th century. Wow, do lots of 17th century mm. stuff as well. So it's it's really fun.
1: well I'm going to check it out because that's uh, one of the reasons why I gave Elizabeth first such a high score because I think it's just such a fascinating time. And uh, I just think that if you were to go down to the the docks in Elizabethan England to see all these exotic animals arriving from the New World, it just seems like it's the start of stuff.
0: So I'll be I'll be diving in. Oh, thank you, Ali. Like you're saying with China, there just. You never, it's like for France and Spain, etc. you've got a good sense of what's happening at the same time to a certain extent because it overlaps with England. But things that are happening in China, you just don't think of mm. some of that stuff at being at the same time as Henry or um, Elizabeth. It's really interesting to actually get that in the same time period and context and have an understanding of what's happening everywhere.
2: Yes, I have got so interested in making those connections. I mean, one of the ones we recorded recently with... Nandini Das was looking at her new book, which is on Sir Thomas Rowe, who's the first English ambassador to India in sixteen fifteen. Mm. Goes to the the Mughal court of Jahangir, and it, it, his Jahangir's reign it almost maps onto the reign of James the First, and mm-hmm. Akbar, Akbar the Great's reign almost maps onto that of Elizabeth the First, and so you can think about this whole dynasty. In India, that's happening at the same time, and then connections between the two. I mean, I find connecting it all up really fascinating, and and just sort of brings a completely different perspective to the things we think we know.
0: Mm. Yeah, because it's like India—that's 18th, 19th century, and that's when that's that's when when Britain gets involved. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah.
2: Yes, and it's much earlier and completely different and the power dynamic is utterly different in the early
0: mm. 70s. Brilliant. Well, that's definitely worth uh, everyone checking out. Uh, yeah, so thank you so much again for uh, for coming on the podcast and for being so helpful for me with my uh, research for this series and the last series. Well, thank you for having me. Cheerio. Bye-bye. So that was uh, Professor Susanna Lipscomb on Henry VIII and his six wives. Uh, Let us know what you thought about all of that. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram where we are at Rex Factor Pod, like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever provider you use or donate monthly, join the Privy Council and get loads of bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor.
1: And you get to join in our Discord, which is where Rex Factor lives. That's our little community.
0: Uh, by which Ali means that is where he lives in Rex yeah. Factor. Because all the other bits Ali is really not engaged <laughs> with.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you're asking us questions on Facebook,
0: um, go nuts, but you know. Uh, we have some new privy counsellors to welcome to the fold. Julie Andrews, um, Kayla Shaughnessy, Emily Hyde, Emma Stace, Amy Bernardus, Brian McIver... Stephanie Gladstein, Nidden, Kath Peters, Gina Fleming, Isaac Borswick, Colonel Claypool, Elizabeth McGrew, Sarah Neville, Ralph Steen, Ed Williams, Megan Burnett, Ali Harrison, Leanne DeMez, Amy Woack, Louise Toll, Lily Mayer, Tamara Melnick, Cassie Shader, and Tanner Lukowski.
1: Well it's very nice to have you here. Here's your, here, here's your pass. That will get you into most places apart from my private lavatory. Lavatory? Lavatory.
0: Lavatory. That's our only interview on the Tudors. We had wanted to do one on Hans Holbein, but unfortunately weren't able to get that one arranged in time. However, we do have one more interview coming up before our next mini-series, as we'll be talking to Dr Roud and Dr G of The Partial Historians, a podcast about ancient Rome, and we'll be talking to them about their new book on the seven kings of Rome, which is called, appropriately for us, Rex. After that, we'll be moving on to our next mini-series on the Stuart Consorts, albeit starting with the husband of Mary I, Philip II of Spain. So we've still got a little bit of tutoring to do before we start the Stuart Consorts, but essentially it's the Stuart Consorts next.
1: Good. Well, cheerio, Tudors. Thanks for having us. See you next time. Cheerio.